So we're in the book of Matthew, and we're in chapter 11, and John is in jail, and he sends messengers to Yeshua to ask him if he's King Messiah. And after answering his question, Yeshua begins a defense of John. Lest those who are present think that think less of John or that John had fallen prey to doubt and lack of faith, he offers a defense. And we'll pick this up in verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Yeshua began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist till now the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so he offers this defense and he says to the people, John is not a reed swayed by the wind as others are. Because people are swayed by every wind of doctrine. Paul says this of the mature in Messiah. He says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by every cunning of craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up in Him who is the head, that is the Messiah. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so as I pointed out last week, at no time in history is this more evident than today. With the internet, with traveling preachers, We have people being tossed about by every wave and wind that rolls in. Yeshua says, no, this is not John. He's not moved by what he sees or by what he hears. He's a prophet. And he's moved only by the words of God. And I want you to remember that later in the message. Yeshua, by praising John, is also saying, we should be like John. We should not be swayed by men. But we should only be listening to the words of God. And so he begins this discourse with this defense of John and then an assessment of those John and he have preached the good news too. What did they do in the light of this message? And he does it with a parable. And remember, parable is a simple story. And it's meant to convey a complex or hard to understand biblical principle. Years ago, I found a a midrash that gives probably the best definition of a parable that I found to date. It reads this way. Our rabbis say, let not the parable be lightly esteemed in your eyes, since by means of a parable, a man can master the words of Torah. If a king loses gold from his house or a precious pearl, does he not find it by means of a wick worth a farthing? 
So the parable should not be lightly esteemed in your eyes, since by means of a parable a man arrives at the true meaning of the words of Torah. You know, believers, because of some of Yeshua's sayings, often think that parables were spoken to conceal the truth. We looked at, let's look at the words of Yeshua once. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, He told them the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything is said in parables. You know, I've heard people often look at this and say that Yeshua used parables to conceal things. That's not at all what's being said. He's saying that those outside the kingdom need parables to understand. Because they're simple teachings that complay, convey complex truths. Think of it for a moment. Yeshua is the greatest teacher who ever lived. Would he purposely mislead his students? Or anyone? Parables like sermon analogies are used when a student can't grasp the truth when stated plainly. The reason that they're hard for us to understand, for us to understand is that Yeshua used simple themes of the day, idioms of the day, and other stories of the day to convey those truths to the people of that day. Many of those themes and idioms have been lost and must be restored in our understanding if we're going to correctly understand the parable. And that takes hard work. So instead of the hard work, what we do in churches is often assign our own meanings and then we never get to what Yeshua was really saying in the parable. And this parable is much the same. Listen to the way it begins in, in verse 16. It says, To what can I compare this generation? You see, this is a very typical beginning to a parable. To what can I compare? To what can I liken this matter? Just as we would use an analogy. So let's see if we can get the correct understanding of this. They are like children sitting in marketplaces calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. You see, if we keep this in the correct context, we're going to have to assume that in Yeshua's parable, the children are John and Yeshua, those who preach the message of the kingdom. We can also liken them possibly to the disciples and really anyone who has preached the message of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom is near. And the reason we have to assume that he's speaking of John is that he speaks of him both before and after. So in that case, he's saying that John came playing the flute and you did not dance. You see, John's message of the kingdom is at hand was good news. But the people didn't accept the message just as those in the marketplace did not dance. John came with a joyful message. The kingdom is near. Who wouldn't be excited with that? But the people didn't accept. You see, the flute had, gr had a great and joyful significance in the temple services, particularly at Shavuot, or what we call Pentecost. It was an instrument of great joy. And at Shavuot, the people would be carrying the first fruits of the land in baskets in a great procession with singing and dancing. And they would be led by a flute player. In Hebrew, halil, which means pierced. The pierced one. And then it says, we sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. You see, the other half of John's message was repent. Turn from your ways and back to the ways of God. That's how you gain entrance 
into the kingdom. It's how you remain in the kingdom. And they didn't listen. And that message that John preached, repent, cost him his life. And so what Yeshua is saying, John came with a serious message of repent for the kingdom is at hand and you did not take it seriously. You didn't listen. And now the reason. Listen to what he says. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. John came neither eating nor drinking. You see, John was a Nazir from birth. The Hebrew root word for Nazir is Nazar. Listen to what it means. To hold of, to abstain from food, drink, and impurity. It means abstainer. One who abstains. And John was certainly that. Remember what was said of John in Matthew chapter 4. It says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. You see, not only did he not eat or drink the fruit of the vine, but his food was wild honey and carob. He dressed like a poor man. Camel skin would not be a comfortable garment. He was, as far as all could see, a righteous man foregoing the pleasures of this life to serve God. But instead of seeing that and listening to his message, they said, he has a demon. Anyone who would live like this would must be demonized. Then next, Yeshua speaks of himself. He says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. You see, Yeshua, on the other hand, he, he comes, he went among the people. He did not keep himself separate as John did. He did not deny himself as John did. But he preached among those who were in sin and needed help. And they called him an unrighteous man. So in other words, what Yeshua is saying is that preaching the message of the kingdom, you're not going to win. You're not going to win with that message. John came as a prophet, Yeshua came as a friend to all, and they put them both to death rather than listen to the joyful message of the kingdom Yeshua preached, nor the message of repentance that cost John his life. And he likens it to his generation. He likens it to this generation. What should I liken this generation to? Let me say, there's nothing new under the sun. Because if you come preaching the word of God in repentance, if you preach the joy of the kingdom, the love of God, people will not accept you or it. And in order not to accept it, they'll do the same thing. They'll attack your character. And in that light, I want to break from the first century for a moment and speak to you a bit of something about a bit more modern. Because nowhere is a reed in the wind more apparent than in the church's growing attitude toward the gay marriage agenda of the day. If you say, look, God said that the behavior of a man lying with a man is detestable. You know what they'll say about you? You're a gay hater, you're prejudiced, you're a bigot. Whatever else they can think of, they'll attack your character. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that those who engage in this type of behavior will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't get in with this type of behavior. God's condemnation of this type of behavior, not the people, mind you, but the behavior is clear. And yet, like reeds swayed in the wind, a major part of the church ignores the Word of God for our own sense of morality, legality, and the rhetoric of other men. If I say anything in the defense of the Word of God, that God does not condone this type of behavior, as I said earlier, they'll call me a gay hater, a bigot. The fact is, I'm not a gay hater. The fact is, I love and God loves all men. He just doesn't love what all men do. I love men. I try to warn them of the coming wrath against men who do not do as the Creator commands. No matter what the command. But doing that, you're called a hater. And the rub is this. I'm not a hater. But those who are trying to get you to condone and accept as normal, what God has told us is not permissible. They're the haters. They hate us. They're trying to keep uh, you and others from the kingdom. Here's the real issue. It has nothing to do with equality or hatred as they would have you believe. The issue is will you accept the testimony of the world, the world's sense of morality and justice, or will you Except the word of God and God's sense of morality and justice. You see, the real issue is how can I, knowing what I know, say yes and vote yes to gay marriage when the act of marriage is to allow and condone two people to do what God says is detestable and will keep them from Him, will separate them from Him. How can I condone what will separate these men and women from God if I truly love these men and women? You see, I can't do it. And yet, for this love of God and men, I and those who say no to this type of behavior are haters. And you see, this is done because if you can kill the messenger in some way through actual death or through character assassination, the message will die as well. Which is exactly what Yeshua is saying. Let me say something. Gay marriage is not about equal rights. Being able to vote is about equal rights. Many states have offered alternatives to marriage that would give equal rights and status, but that wasn't good enough. Gay marriage is not about gay bashing or gay hating. Fear and insecurity about who you are and God are the cause of that. It doesn't matter how much love you have or show, if you disagree, you're a hater. The Gay Marriage Amendment is about whether or not Minnesotans will say yes to God and His commands and His love for men, all men, or will Minnesota say no to God and thereby say, God, what are we really saying? We're saying, God, you don't know what you speak. I don't care if, what you, if you say it's wrong that will separate me and others from the kingdom? Men's rhetoric, men's morality, President Obama and Governor Dayton's arguments sound better to me than your wishes, so I'm going to vote no to the amendment. The forbidding of gay marriage amendment is pure and simple whether 
We will deny what God says in favor of what men say. And that's what sin is always about. Nothing more, nothing less. It's the same old story. You find it in the fall. The serpent said in essence, hey, don't listen to God. Did he really say don't eat from the fruit? Here, eat. This will make you like God. Listen, God loved Adam and he loved Eve. He created them out of the dust of the earth. But he could not live with what they did because what they did separated them from him. So if you love God and you love men, then you have to vote yes to this amendment. It's a no-brainer. The fact is, even if you've never voted before, you need to go out and register to vote because this amendment is about whether Minnesota will follow God or men, pure and simple. Because I can tell you this, if you listen to the rhetoric and the amendment doesn't pass, then very soon those who condone this behavior will find an activist judge who will strike down our law forbidding it, forbidding two men and two women to marry, and thereby take your choice and the following of God's wishes away from you. And all that will remain is the wrath of God. If you allow this to happen and then express your opinion, then you'll be called a bigot. If you allow that to happen and someone comes here to get married and I turn them down because they're of the same sex, they can remove our tax exemption. And find me or anyone who refuses to marry them. And so I wanted to kind of cut through the rhetoric of gay marriage for you because, again, it isn't about anything except whether you're going to obey or disobey God or whether you're going to obey or disobey men. As for me and my house, we're going to go vote. Amen? And I want you to notice something else. I want you to know something else. You need to vote. If you go to vote for the governor, let's say, or you go to vote for someone in the Congress, and you don't vote on this amendment, you just leave it blank, it counts as a no. So you need to vote. You need to say yes to the amendment. Amen? So anyway... Like I say, I wanted to cut through that rhetoric a little bit. But back to the first century. Notice it says, Wisdom is proved by her actions. Some texts say children. And I want you to notice that wisdom is almost given the status of an individual entity. It's like the Word of God is given human characteristics. Years ago, we did a study on the Aramaic translations of the Bible. The word memra is an Aramaic, Aramaic word that means exactly that, means word. And what we found was that it was used in the Aramaic translations like it was a person. The memra, or the word of the Lord, was used as a circumlocution for God. As an example, let's read the Targum on Genesis 1.1. From the beginning with wisdom, the memra of the Lord created and perfected the heaven and the earth. And the earth was waste and unformed, desolate of man and beast, empty of plant cultivation and of trees. And darkness was spread over the face of the abyss and the spirit of mercy from before the Lord was blowing over the surface of the water. And I want you to notice that with wes- it says, with wisdom, the memra created and perfected the heavens and the earth. The word 
created and perfected the heavens and the earth. And if we go to verse 33, it says this, And the Memra of the Lord said, Let there be light. And there was light according to the decree of the Memra. And so this word is given human characteristics. Well, wisdom, or in Hebrew, chokmah, is the same. In the Word of God and in other writings, is given these human characteristics. And in fact, in many traditions, these, these two words are used interchangeably. The Word and chokmah. Proverbs says this in chapter 4, verse 6. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. So what I want you to see, could Yeshua be comparing himself to wisdom? John compared him to the word. He says, the word was made flesh and dwell among us. The Targum speak of the Memra as creating the heavens and the earth. And John told us that Yeshua was the word made flesh and that he created the heavens and the earth. Paul certainly thought Yeshua was wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 30 and verse 31 it says, It is because of him that you are in Messiah Yeshua, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. One of my favorite books, other than the Bible, is the book of Enoch. It's not scripture, but as I often point out, it was read by the first century disciples and it became scripture by virtue of being quoted in the book of Jude. But Enoch too speaks of wisdom. Let's see what Enoch, the book of Enoch says of wisdom in chapter 42, verse 1 and 3. Wisdom found no place where she might dwell. Then a dwelling place was assigned to her in the heavens. Wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men and found no dwelling place. Wisdom returned to her place and took her seat among the angels. When you really look at this text, you're going to notice that it's very much like the sayings of Yeshua. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20, which we read a few weeks ago, says, says, Yeshua replied, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's very much like what we just read. Wisdom went forth and made her... Make, to make her dwelling among men, but found no place to dwell. It's also very much like First John chapter 11. He came, to that, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, yet to all who receive him. The point being, Yeshua is comparing himself to wisdom. He's saying wisdom is right by her actions. Remember when John said, are you the one or should we expect another? Yeshua's answer was with actions. The fact is, Yeshua let his actions speak for him all of his life. Never once did he say, yeah, I'm the Messiah. But everything that he does and everything that he did on the earth screams, I'm the Messiah. Next, Yeshua says of his actions and the lack of repentance in the light of those actions. In verse 20, he says, Then Yeshua began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Kerazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, 
They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be lifted up to the skies. Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would remain to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, for those who would like to say, you know, Yeshua is love. And because of that, he's accepting of what all men do, no matter what. He's accepting of all things. It's really love that counts. Love means we can do what we want, no matter what the Bible says, because we have Yeshua. He's love. It's kind of a hard message for that, isn't it? Kind of flies in the face of that, doesn't it? You see, Yeshua is love. And as I said earlier, He loves all men. But Yeshua, like the Father, cannot live with what men do. He created us in His image. And we, like Adam and Eve, have turned from that and do things that are detestable to Him and unlike His image. The very nature of the good news of the kingdom of heaven requires that we repentance from the things that God forbids and the doing of the things that again reflect His image. And Yeshua is saying, in these cities wisdom walked, wisdom spoke the words of God in these cities, the power of God that was upon Him healed the sick, and those, uh, the sick of those who repented, and yet those of the cities, those cities did not repent. If wisdom is proved by your actions, then how much more is foolishness? They saw and called Yeshua a winebiber. They called his miracles the work of demons and did not repent. And because of that, they were destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. And if we go back to our current century, because the problem is we're no different. We have all of this written down for us. God says, this is not allowed in my kingdom. This is detestable. And not at all as I made you. It's not, you're not in my image any longer. We have sin spelled out for us all throughout the Bible. And if we didn't get it, After reading Genesis to Galatians, Yeshua sums it up, or Shaul sums it up for us in chapter 5 like this. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Shaul sums it up for us. If we don't repent from these things, we're not part of his kingdom. And yet, we continue, even in the church, you can find all of the above being done. If the cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum will not escape the wrath, how do we expect to escape? I mean, how much plainer does it get? Do this, and you get the joy of the kingdom. Do that and you'll not see God nor the kingdom. How simple. 
How simple is it? You see, let me ask you, who are the real haters in the world today? Is God a hater? Are those who do the things their creator says not, or are those who do the things the creator says not to do the haters of God? Want to see the kingdom? Well, Shaul tells us what not to do. He also tells us what to do. He says of this in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. You see, Shaul makes it really easy for us. Do these things and you're in. Do the others and you're out. It's about as clear as anyone can make it. Right? Theologians who condone some of the behaviors that we've talked about earlier, like men lying with men, will tell you that Paul was just speaking these things because of his day. You know, we've grown in our understanding since then. We're more mature now. We're more knowledgeable now. We're more educated now. You know what I say to that? I get a Hebrew word. Ba-lo-ni. What we are is more permissive. More sinful. And those theologians and preachers are preaching sinfulness and lawlessness. And let me say this about Paul. He didn't escape either. First century Rome didn't like Paul's message either and they put him to death. But that's not all. They're putting him to death in the churches today as well. And taking this back to the to the marriage amendment, let me say this. Every Christian who votes no or abstains, because like I said earlier, you should know that if you abstain from voting, it's a no. Every Christian who votes no or abstains puts the words of Paul to death as well. Amen? So, that's my take on it anyway. You may have another take. If you do, come see me at lunch. <laughs>